0: Hey, everyone, this is Josh Itzo, author of The Fiduciary Formula, and you're listening to The Fiduciary You Podcast, where I share the latest information on corporate retirement plan trends, ideas, and best practices. On the show, I feature industry experts across multiple disciplines to get their unique perspectives and actionable insights about what it takes to navigate the complexities of ERISA and provide a great retirement plan for employees in a rapidly changing world. If you're a retirement plan decision maker at your company or a retirement industry professional, this podcast is for you. Welcome to episode number 14 of the Fiduciary You Podcast. My guest today is Matt Wolnowitz, who was recently named President of Income America, as well as holding a board advisory role for Prime Capital Investment Advisors. Uh, Matt is a 25-year veteran in the financial services industry. He was previously President of FI360 before they sold to Broadridge. Uh, in seeing that transaction through, and he was also a senior exec at Morningstar before that. Matt's new gig at Income America was recently announced and is really interesting, bringing together several industry leaders to create a series of target date portfolios that provide guaranteed lifetime income. On today's episode, Matt and I cover a whole host of different topics, including the importance of fiduciary advice, retirement plan fees, conflicts of interest, fintech in the wealth and ERISA space, and how his experience with his dad's retirement laid the groundwork for his passion to deliver guaranteed income to Americans. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Fiduciary U podcast with Matt Wolnowitz. Matt, welcome to the Fiduciary U podcast. Thanks so much for being a guest today. Thanks for having me, Josh. I look forward to the conversation. Likewise. I think we're going to touch on a lot of really cool topics today. So, um, you've had a, a really, I think, uh, neat, interesting, varied career within the financial services industry. And, and um, I'm just going to recount okay. really quickly. You're welcome. And I'm going to, I think it's a, a really, I think you've been able to see the industry from a lot of different perspectives. You know, you've, you've recently, m- most recently to before your new gig, you were uh, president at FI 360. Before that, you were at Morningstar. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, oversaw the transaction of FI 360 getting bought by Broadridge. And mm-hmm. more recently, have uh, become president of Income America and also a board mm-hmm. advisor to Prime Capital Investment Advisors. And so I-, I do think you've seen things from a lot of different angles. Can you just maybe tell listeners a little bit about, that may not be familiar, a little bit about kind of your background and your journey and, and from Morningstar to... You know, a, a, a fintech provider, if you will, to so now more on the asset management side.
1: Yeah, sure, Josh. I mean, um, you know, it's been it's been really interesting, and I've been so lucky and blessed to um, to really enjoy each stop that I've made. You know, my time at Morningstar couldn't have been any neater because I was able to really um, learn and tap into all the thought leadership that they had. And at the end of the day, Morningstar believes in making the end investor successful. And and that's a part of me that I always had before. And that's a part of me that that lives on until this day. And it really has helped uh, inform me as I've thought about the solutions that we could bring to market. Because in my eyes, if the advisors and the institutions that serve them do the right thing for the end investor, everybody wins. I mean, what better outcome could there be to to have successful investors that are happy with the advice that they receive from their advisors? Um, And then, you know, if the institutions that serve the advisors can create innovative solutions that at the end of the day are there to protect the end investor. That's just a great outcome. So my time at Morningstar was was wonderful. I have lots and lots of friends there. It was actually the, the hardest decision that I ever personally made in my life to leave. I remember the day that I had the conversation. I, I literally bawled like a baby. Um, I thought they were going to call an ambulance to come get me because I just couldn't imagine life without that. But getting the opportunity to move to FI 360 was, was really the opportunity of a lifetime, you know, and, and what, what really drew interest to me there was the fact that FI had a, had a really sterling reputation and they did something that was really phenomenal for advisors and their focus was really on the advisor there. And so I just believed in what they were doing and that was helping, you know, empower advisors to deliver fiduciary advice to, the end investor, as I mentioned at Morningstar, I really developed my, you know, my passion for the end investor. So getting a chance to go into FI and, you know, at the time that I joined it, it was about 20 people. And um, over the course of seven years, we expanded our focus, not only from the end advisor, but really to the institutions that served them and spent a lot of time talking with the broker dealers um, and the asset management community about how they could best equip their advisors. And it's, it was amazing to me to watch the transformation because when I moved to FI, um, I think that was back in 14 or 13, you know, the F word to the end investor, it wasn't in the forefront of their mind. But by the time that we had transitioned the company to Broadridge, that was really one of the leading indicators out there. And, and to see Schwab do some commercials where they, they talked about asking your advisor if they're a fiduciary, it's amazing literally amazing how the pendulum had swung over time. And so, you know, I feel like at FI it was it was great for me personally and professionally. Um, you know, again, I, I left a lot of friends there. I didn't quite cry as hard as I did when I left Morningstar, but um, you know, I'm excited now, Josh, to to be working with Income America and helping provide some really innovative solutions that are going to help advisors and the uh, the end investors. So amazing how fast time flies. And like I said, I've been really lucky and, um, you know, have a lot of friends in this space. So I really enjoy what I do every single day.
0: That's awesome. And we're going to talk a little bit about Income America a little bit later in the show, really doing some some interesting things that that breaking new ground, I would say. So, well, thanks. You, you know, you mentioned just a moment ago when you were talking about Morningstar, right? And this this kind of idea of creating a good outcome for investors and, and, you know, you were describing fiduciary based advice, right. And that, Mm -hmm. that really, you know, FI 360. And I think I got my AIF in, I want to say 2006 really probably early on. I'm not even sure when, when the, when the company started, but it was, you know, it was uh, it was early on. We, We started Greenspring Advisors at the end of 2004 as a fee only RIA fully embracing the fiduciary standard. And, you know, it's funny, the, you know, the F word has become in some cases more of, I think a marketing term, right? That's what everybody kind of talks about is the, you know, I, I always say that it's easy to be a fiduciary, but it's hard to be an effective one. You know, being mm-hmm. a fiduciary is you just, it's contractual, but mm-hmm. being, a, being, right. a really, being a really good one is, is, you know, it's the difference between the do-it-yourself homeowner who has great tools, but doesn't know what to do with them versus the master craftsman, if you will. What do you think the the future of fiduciary looks like in our industry? I think in many cases, you know, if you look at CPA firms or CPAs or you look at attorneys, I think mm-hmm. they're viewed much more as as professionals than those mm-hmm. of us in the financial services industries in a lot of cases and I think part of that is it's compensation related, right? When there are conflicts of interest from a compensation standpoint. I think that is what is the difference between when you're viewed as, and I don't think sales is a dirty word at all, but when you're viewed as more of a kind of a, a, a sales and distribution career versus an actual an actual professional. And I think what fiduciary does is it eliminates a lot of those compensation conflicts and and elevates helps to elevate the profession the, the industry as a profession. Mm-hmm. And not just as a, you know, more of a, a distribution or, or or marketing environment. What do you think of the future of fiduciary, given that you, you know, for seven years led an organization that was really trying to promote the concept of what it means to be a fiduciary?
1: Yeah, well, you know, Josh, you know, I, I've got a bunch of thoughts on that. I mean, you know, first of all, Blaine Aiken from FI has written a lot on the topic of the professionalization of advice, but I mean, I think, again, I, you know, I want to peel it back to the end investor level. And, you know, today the average investor still doesn't understand that their advisor is not required to be a fiduciary. You know, that, that, that at the end of the day, that is more shocking to me than almost anything else. You know, I think that the end investor just thinks that much like their CPA or their lawyer, that the advice that they receive is fiduciary. And, and we all know that that just, isn't the case. You know, and and it's funny when you think about an attorney being able to charge 500, 600, $700 an hour for the work that they perform. And you're right. You know, the the average person says, okay, that's how much it is. You know, it's worth it. I'm going to, I'm going to pay for it for the expertise. But on the other hand, you know, their relationship with their financial advisor, that's, what's going to set them up for life. And I don't think that there's any relationship that's more important mm-hmm. than they have with their financial advisor. But but if that advisor, and again, listen, I, you know, personally I, I've got an issue with um, anybody being able to use the fact that they're a quote unquote financial advisor, because again, you know, title alone is is pretty misleading. Right. But if that advisor is conflicted and, you know, they have different sources of income, when you talk about sales and distribution. I mean, that's where, that's where I have issues with it. And so if they can make a lot more money by putting somebody into a product, you know, that just isn't right at the end of the day. So you know, as, I, as I mentioned in the intro, you know, slowly people are becoming more aware of what a fiduciary is. You know, I, I, and maybe later we can touch on regulation best interest, but you know, did that help or hurt? You could argue either side of the case but um, if people think that somebody is operating in their best interest, and yet they're not a fiduciary, you know, those standards are much different. And, and it's pretty nuanced. And the average investor in general has no idea how much they're paying, um, much less the difference between that. But, but those are really important things. I mean, I, I see as we look into the future, you know, the ability for the average American to get fiduciary advice. That's one of the things that will help solve the retirement savings crisis that we have today, because you touched on it. I think at the end of the day, it's all about trust. And if the average investor is uncertain or they don't really trust who they're working with, you know, they're not gonna be all in on it. And that's something that we need. As everybody knows, we need people to save more and we need them to save more today. So I think that the fiduciary advice is paramount to the end investor. You know, but it's also interesting, Josh, and I mean, you know this better than anybody else, you know, with an RAA being having that fiduciary duty by default, if you just look across the landscape and you think about the mega trends in the space, the fact that more and more advisors are attracted to the RAA model, there's got to be something in there besides just being able to run your own business. So. You know, again, I think about doing the right thing for the investor. The other thing that I believe is that the firms that really embrace fiduciary and live it top to bottom, they're the ones that are going to win. And so over time, if you're a shop that um, is conflicted by nature between the products that you sell and the share classes that you use, I just think that over time, those shops that are really fiduciary in nature they are absolutely gonna outperform and outgrow. And at the end of the day, I think that they're gonna gobble them up. Those that aren't, it's not gonna happen today or tomorrow, but I believe that that's a trend that is already exists. The train has left the station on that. And I think it's just gonna accelerate over time.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think if you look, and and I haven't looked at the data, that recently, but you know a few years ago, and and I think it's continued to accelerate. and obviously, the you know I started my career at a big wirehouse firm and and sure. uh, before we we struck out on our own. and if you just look at the growth of the r a channel and that model in general over the past ten or fifteen years, you know has just captured tremendous market share, you know growth wise relative to i think that more conflicted model even from a warehouse perspective i think they've maybe been trading clients back and forth with one another but <laughs> obviously exactly. advisors and 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 assets you know in a free market system right it's going to it's going to move to the best it's going to move to the best solution and you know i think the the you bring up an interesting point about the firms that embrace what it means to be a fiduciary mm-hmm. it's not just good marketing speak right it it, mm-hmm. it emanates from this essentially this others focused Mentality, and you know, I think it. I think it's. I remember my days in the wirehouses, and not. I met some great people there. I worked with some great people, but you know, that conflicted model. I think what uh, one of the challenges is in that model. You are an adversary to your clients, right? First and foremost, you need to look out for the best interests of the firm. And then, you know, most people, it's probably their practice and then their firm and then their right. clients. Yep. And it's not that they don't want to work in, it's not that they don't want to do what's right for clients, but the game is just set up in a way that makes it hard to be able to do that. And I think the fiduciary model, what it does is you move from adversary to advocate, and there's something powerful in building that relationship with a client when you can advocate for them and really be kind of like the sentry you know, up on the watchtower and, and make sure that the marketplace is treating your clients fair, you know, fairly. And, you know, my dad used to always say to me, he's like, you know, operate in the light. You know, if you operate in the light, yeah. you know, people, people, you know, people like to live in the dark because they don't want their, their, their misdeeds to be seen. But if you just walk in the light and operate in the light, like you don't ever have to make excuses. If you, you don't ever have to make excuses for what you do. And so I do think it's an interesting, I feel like in some ways fiduciary has been, it kind of feels like it's like it's old hat, Mm-hmm. But I I still think there's a there you know we need as an industry we shouldn't even be talking about this conversation of like what it means to be a fiduciary as <laughs> compared to not be a fiduciary. So
1: I agree, Josh. You know the but the other you know the other stat that um, always surprises me, right? And you know if you think about the number of financial advisors that are out there, you know the the number I've seen all different kinds of numbers three hundred thousand, six hundred thousand. You know who's licensed and who isn't, and you know, there's a lot of debate about that. But even if you just say that there's there's three hundred thousand, and you know there's there's eighty thousand CFPs. So you know what is that? That's less than a third that carry that designation. You know, at FI we had around thirteen or fourteen thousand AIFS, and so again, that's that's even a smaller um, percentage. And and that's why I think that you know over time the difference. And really, as the end consumer begins to understand what fiduciary means, I just think that that's one of those trends that is never going to go back in the box. And it's not that, you know, if you work at a wire, it's not that you're not a fiduciary or you don't do the right thing. But yeah, I mean, you know, that that firm is interested in making money. That's why they exist. And so, you know, it was interesting several years ago when the asset management arm of those firms split off and they became pure broker dealers and then they got rid of their fund business it almost seems like in some ways today though in some of those shops with managed accounts and model portfolios that it's moving back the other way you know and again at the end of the day as long as the investor knows and understands like you talked about shining the light on there um, there's nothing lo- wrong with that as long as they're told about it but if it's buried in disclosures that's not doing anybody any good because we all know that and in, 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 the, in, you know, the individual investor never is going to read any of that. Right. So, right. you know, those are, those are some of the other issues that, um, by doing the right thing for people, you know, it really does make a difference.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You can, with disclosure, you know, I've, I've always said that the difference between disclosure and transparency, you know, disclosure is data and information, mm-hmm. but it lacks what I would consider to be context, right. And transparency <laughs> yeah. is really around taking data and information and then wrapping it in context, and and you know, I I I, uh, I actually in 2009 spoke at the Fi360 conference, and um, I had the very last session of the entire. Uh, nope, not not too many people. I think I had maybe I think maybe a hundred people. hung Yeah, right, exactly. Everybody had uh, it was packed on the airplanes where everybody was flying <laughs> home and didn't go to the last section or session. But I I talked about fee transparency and mm-hmm. that you know transparency as an advisor is actually it it is your friend right it's not something to fear it's something to embrace because if you can if you can control that dialogue it just naturally where people feel like i think there's a lot of confusion is it's the compensation piece and you know most people may not admit i totally don't understand what the fees are because most people want to seem smarter than they actually are but deep down mm-hmm. very whether it's a plan sponsor a retirement committee and in you know, member, an individual investor. I still don't think we've had it done a great job as an industry. And I think there's a lot of room to have straightforward, meaningful, plain English, clear conversations around, you know, around compensation and fees and not just providing, hey, here's my disclosure document. I can be fully compliant and still totally confusing. Yep. And so I think we need That's to do right. a better job with those conversations. You know, you mentioned
1: that. uh, Let me interrupt you for one second, real quick, because I think you brought up an interesting point. You know, um, when you talk about fee transparency, you know, the the flight from active management and the fees there to ETFs, right? I I think that a lot of investors have, you know, they may not really understand it, but they've migrated to ETFs because they, they hear that it's cheaper, right? And the expense ratio is fairly easy to understand. They probably don't understand the share class. But on the advisor comp side, i bet that most of them have no idea how much their advisor makes, especially if they're not in an RA model where it's pretty simple and straightforward. And so again, you think about confusion at the end investor level, you know, that's something else. That's a trend that I believe is common. And know I hear a lot of advisors talk about fee compression and yet at FI on the, on the retirement side, we, we had a lot of great data. And at the end of the day, it is value. If you add value to your customer, they're willing to pay for that, just like yeah. they would, as we talked about with, like, I just had my taxes done. It was expensive, but it was worth it. And so, you know, some of that is, is a self-perpetuating cycle. But I believe that advisor comp is something that more end investors will become uh, more in tune with. And yeah. I really think that'll be good for the industry once that happens.
0: Yeah. You know, it's so funny. A lot of advisors, even going back again to fiduciary, and I know with the, you know, the DOL fiduciary rule, when that was the first, you know, years ago, when, when so many of these things have been, you know, fits and starts and two steps forward yeah. and one step back, and yeah. you know, I actually think if everyone's held to a fiduciary standard, I actually think that's a great thing. I don't, I don't fear that because at that point we can stop talking about are you or aren't you a fiduciary because that doesn't yeah. really matter. Now yeah. we can start talking about well, who's delivering value, and and value is not quantitative. Value I think is very subjective. You know, prices is, is quantitative, but value you know, value is, is subjective. So I'm, I'm, I'm in agreement with you. And I do, I do think, you know, it's hard to say this as an advisor, but I do think the advisory world, and I think very much the record keeping world is still really inefficient from a pricing, you know, from a pricing (laughs) uh, perspective. You know, we look at the, we look at the, the, the markets and we look at, you know, obviously you mentioned it, right. The rise to, you know, and, and Morningstar, it was obviously a huge, you know, uh, perpetuator in a good way of bringing, transparency and context around what do investments that's right and you know now i can go out and and we've seen i think you know markets have become very efficient and you've seen this huge shift from active to passive over the past 15 years and um towards costs and low cost Uh, i still think that the advisory and the record keeping on the, the 401k side market is very very it's an inefficient Model, yeah. Because there's not a lot of transparency. You can't no. go on Morningstar and say, well, what does so and so charge for their advisory fee? So I agree with you at some point. I don't think it's going to be immediate, but I do think uh, as more technology and I want to actually shift to this, I think as more technology and tools and fintech start to de- democratize that type of information, you know, ultimately, it's I mean, we've seen in other industries, you've seen it in the car industry, right, with true car. And, and mm-hmm. you know, now I can go negotiate a car and and walk into a dealership and feel like mm-hmm. there's more of a level playing field because mm-hmm. I'm not at an inf- information disadvantage, you know, from a fintech perspective. So let's talk about that, mm-hmm. because I do think technology is kind of the enabler of that democracy, mm-hmm. uh, of democratizing information. A couple of things where why do you think that fintech um, and I've said this on podcasts before is. I feel like the wealth management side of the business gets that they're the cool kids and they get all the cool toys and, and they've mm-hmm. got really powerful fintech tools at their disposal. Mm-hmm. I feel like in the 401k ERISA world, where most of the listeners of this podcast kind of hang out, I still feel like we're playing like with Slinkies, you know, and, you know, Frisbees in the, mm-hmm. the backyard and, you know, the other side of the business gets all the cool stuff. Why do you think that is? And what do you think the future of fintech within the retirement space is going to look like?
1: Yeah, I, that's a great question. And I, I think that, you know, I've got some pretty strong opinions there. I mean, you know, it, it's almost like, Josh, you know, uh, FI started back in the ERISA space long before there was a lot of, there was a lot of thought there. And, and the reason that they, that they entered that market was because there was enough legislation and case law to begin to construct the designation and the prudent practices. However, that's also intimidating to people. You know, and, and it's interesting to see just in general, the number of advisors that are really focused on wealth versus retirement. I mean, you know better than I do, but but my feeling is that a lot of people will stay away from the retirement plan side because they're straight up afraid of the legal ramifications. And not only that, their OSJ or their supervisor may not want them to play in there because there is, you know, a greater chance for liability at the firm. So, you know, the, the community that's formed around really providing innovative solutions to the retirement side, it's less, right? And again, if we talk about stats, 300,000 advisors, I've seen stats that say about 100,000 have a plan. Um, but then once you get into the specialists, you know, those that it depends on how you define it, but five or 10 more, that, that universe shrinks even more to 30 or 40,000. So, you know, I think part of it is the other thing that I think in the, in the fintech space is, you know, on the wealth management side, a lot of that is more end investor facing, and so I think that those end investors are just used to having an app on their on their phone that they can go to, and they have a higher expectation. Um, you know, from a net asset base, that there's there's more money on the wealth management side. It's more profitable for a practice. And so I think that advisors are, are more willing to spend there. But you know, the other thing on the on the retirement side is again, it is case law, government regulation, industry best practices. So I think that it takes a special commitment to that space as a technology provider. You know, FI made the transition from creating the AIF and the designation, and then in 07 or 08, oh, to answer your question, FI was founded in 99. I think the first designation came around 01. So you were definitely at the the head of the class, but the toolkit for advisors. At least I've been head
0: of the class in something in my life. That's actually, (laughs) I I appreciate that.
1: There you go. You know, the the toolkit didn't come until um, 07 or 08. So, you know, almost 10 years later. And and that simply came about because advisors said, hey, the, the practices are great how do I implement that into my, into my practice on a day-to-day basis? So I I think that there's some intimidation from the tech providers. They know that there's a lot of case law and regulation. Um, They really don't know how they're going to fit in there. And so, you know, for us, we made a really big financial commitment to, um, to update our software um, and it ended up paying off in the end, but it was a big capital spend to get in there. So I think that there is a lot of opportunity for pure FinTech plays, in the retirement plan side of the business, simply because there hasn't been a lot of innovation. You know, the other thing, and, and you mentioned it, Josh, um, with the record keepers, that information is pretty disparate and it's proprietary. And so, you know, one of the things that we did at FI is we helped create a repository for all the assets that practices had. So irrespective of the record keeper that it was at, we brought it into one spot and normalized the data. That was a huge, 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 huge undertaking because each record keeper has their own proprietary system and really nothing ties it out together. So, you know, again, when I think about innovation and investment, there's a lot of, there's a lot of ground to cover. um, And there's a lot of good things that I think can and will happen in that space. However, even if you think about the robo advisors, right, all that was really focused on the wealth management side. So I just, I, I just don't feel like there's been a lot of investment in, innovative technology or innovative solutions in the retirement plan
0: space. Yeah. You know, you bring up a, you bring up a really interesting point as well. And as I kind of play this forward a little bit, um, you know, and, and having a firm that has both, you know, a large wealth practice and a large retirement practice, mm-hmm. the custodians, if you think about, you know, on the, and, and most of these custodians, right, the Schwabs and the Fidelities, let's just say mm-hmm. are, are, you know, the two big, two of the biggest, ria wealth management custodians right mm-hmm. yep and what they're trying to do is enable rias all right that's their that's their 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 they're trying to be partners to rias and so they've opened up on that side of the business they've opened up their data and technology right mm-hmm. they've opened up their yep. data right. to a lot of fintech providers so if it's yep. an or orion or a tamarack Right, they can get build hooks into that data, and daily that information is going to flow back and forth. And so, that flow of information and that data and that integration has really enabled those fintech tools for wealth management advisors. It's very different what we see, and you mentioned it the proprietary. I think you were meaning less about maybe the proprietary information, but the proprietary system where they're locking That's it clear. down. Yeah. And so, there's not like one standards based. You know, call it API or pipe or whatnot that you can Correct. hook into. Everyone's a custom build, and quite frankly, a lot of the record keepers like they don't want to give their data up. No, um, we saw that we we a Morningstar product by all accounts a few years ago. Yeah, we tried to implement that to aggregate into 401k plans, and it was constantly <laughs> breaking because like the you know the record keepers were changing interfaces and security protocols, and I think with the rise of probably cyber security and some of those risks, you know, it might be going backwards instead of, instead of forward. So maybe that's another reason why on the ERISA side, there's the regulation piece, but there's also getting access to the data in terms of record keepers being willing to give it up and two, having to build kind of one-off custom integrations for everything is tough. Is that fair? You know,
1: yeah, and, and that's a good point, Josh, because even when I think about my friends at Morningstar, they still have great solutions on the wealth management side but they really don't have anything in the ERISA space, you know, and, you know, the other trend that we saw um, was really this convergent between wealth and retirement. And while I think that that's just in its beginning stages, because, you know, as, as an advisor, if you're, if you're working on the plan, there is a reluctance to, you know, begin to work with some of the high net worth individuals just because you don't want that, you know, perceived conflict of interest. And so, you know, I find that firms buy one set of technology for the wealth side, another set of technology for the retirement side, and they don't really communicate. And so, you know, and again, I'm not a practicing advisor, but I'm sure that there's gotta be some frustrations there because wouldn't it be great to show your, your clients, you know, everything in uh, one simple format.
0: Yeah, it, 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 you know, technology is powerful and there's so much promise, but the devil's always in the details, right? You, yep. you, get, that, you get the technology, but it's, it, there are two things I think that go into it. One, you have to implement it well, and I don't think a lot of firms quite frankly probably you know we always think we're better than we we think we're better than we are, but probably don't implement it as well as they could. but the real thing is then user adoption behave you know the behavior piece right you can have the best That's technology right. in the world, but if you can't get your users to you know use it or whatnot that that whole change management is is really tough, but yeah, you're right. I mean it's partly because just the wealth and the retirement. They are totally like, there's a, maybe a little bit of overlap around, yeah. maybe you can, maybe you can resource share around investment philosophy or research, but they're two mm-hmm. totally different businesses requiring, you know, totally two totally different sets of tools, if you will. And there's not, I mean, we've seen this, not a lot of, they're just different businesses. In some cases, like it's like you're, you're, um, it's like your roommates, you live under the same roof, but you know, you, one, one of you has a job that, you know, you travel all around the country and you're only home, you know, four days a, four days a month. And, you know, the other one is, is uh, you know, goes to the office every single day. And so you kind of see each other and whatnot, but you know, it's, it's you live kind of different lives. Um,
1: you know, you, hey Josh, just one other yeah. thing, you know, you brought up an interesting point. I mean, one of the challenges of being a FinTech provider, um, because we had a great solution at FI, was that as we came out with enhancements, you know, your, your typical user who bought the tool to do something, they don't really understand it. And so we made a really big investment in um, our client engagement specialists because it was key to us to make sure that people knew the enhancements that we brought out. But in absence of that, you know, it's pretty hard to change behavior. And, and so I feel like, you know, the average casual user kind of misses out on some of the enhancements. and. I mean, listen, it's like that with a lot of software that you buy, right. but, but that's another challenge on the fintech side.
0: No, that's a really, that is a really interesting point. Do you think that fintech providers in some ways make technology too complex? It's too, they're, they're, this desire, there's too much, too much feature, too many features, too much functionality. It's, it's hard to use and people get overwhelmed. Do you think fintech providers would maybe be better to kind of think about how to maybe build simpler Experiences instead of more complex ones. Well,
1: I, your question is awesome because this topic applies to both the wealth and the retirement side. You know, and you know, I used to love to listen to, to Jud Bergman from Investnet talk because he talked about at the end of the day in the fintech space, what wins? Is it the is it the point um, solution that does something exceptionally well, but you need to combine that with other solutions to make it work, or is it this big? all-in-one solution. And clearly, InvestNet's gone down the road of trying to build the all-in-one. What I see though there, Josh, is, is when you're trying to do something like that, you may be surface-deep okay in a lot of areas, but you're not great in any one. Right. And so, you know, when you think about the end-user interface, I think it's really hard for fintech solutions, especially in the ERISA space, to be really focused on doing something great. And, and, you know, again, I think a lot of them um, maybe came out of the academic world and they try and apply them and they don't exactly fit. And so, you know, then they're messing with different pieces. I think that that's a really hard way to do it. I think development has to be at the practicing advisor level to really understand what the challenges are and to make it easy for that practice to implement because then they're going to use it. Um, And then it's simply a matter of how much can you do. And, And I would argue that you can do something's really good. But like at FI, we were really focused on investment due diligence. Um, and, and that's where we stopped. We didn't build a rebalancing tool. We didn't build something to invest. Because again, once you begin to do that, the complexity yeah. of the tool just grows and grows. So, yeah. you know, I think that there's a lot of great minds out there. I think there's a lot of great technology out there. There's a lot of need. But I believe that at least in the short term, these, these point solutions are going to rule the day.
0: Yeah, it, it, I, I would call those edge cases, right? they there. I like to woodwork, and so you know, I've got a shop in you know my backyard and my in my shed. And um, I come from a family of master craftsmen. Unfortunately, huh. those those genes kind of skipped me. But <laughs> I like to tinker, and you know, it's it's. I just don't have. I don't have a Swiss Army knife, and that's not the only tool that I have. Like in my shed, right? I have lots of different tools, and on yeah. certain projects, yep. you know, I use my table saw, and you know, I use my jill drill press over and over and over again, or I use my compound miter saw, but in other cases, you know, there are tools that I may only use once out of every five projects, but when I need that tool, yep. it, it, it provides, it's like a force multiplier for me. It provides a lot of, it, it, it does exactly what it's supposed to on the wealth side. Interestingly enough, there's a Holista plan is a, um, has really is a, is a tech platform that has, they do uh, like tax planning and some really cool tax planning and it's blown up in the wealth space, um, but it just, you know, it's not a full-blown, it, it 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 does a couple of things really, really well and yeah. really, really quickly. And and the do- adoption, it's more of an edge case. It's not trying to be all things to all people. And I think the future for fintech is more niche kind of solutions, edge cases, like you said, and, and instead of trying to be all things to all people, really focusing on doing some very niche-specific jobs, but doing it really, really well. Um, let's talk about the... Transition that you had, and we talked. We 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 mentioned. I think you uh, you left Fi Three. Well, Broadridge last summer, and Mm -hmm. you you joined. I guess as a board advisor to Prime Capital Mm -hmm. in October, and have taken over as as president of Income America. So maybe talk a little bit about you know what how that come about, and then this this new you, you. By the time the show is launched. You'll have announced Income America. Uh, we're recording yeah. right now, and it hasn't even gone public yet. So, why don't you then talk a little bit about you know what you're trying to do as is, is part of Income America, and, and it's pretty interesting. Uh, it's actually very interesting. And so maybe you can talk a little bit about what uh, what your strategy and what your goals are with um, with this this new new solution, new business.
1: Sure, I got to um, I got to tell a personal story though, real quick, because it got me thinking when you were you were talking earlier, you know, my dad retired back in 08. And so, you know, at the time, um, and he, I think he was early, he was probably the first quarter, right? So at the time, it was actually a pretty good time to get started, because I don't think that the, that the crash started until maybe late summer. I don't really remember, but
0: Right, when right, he around, tired, October, right around October 1 is when things started okay. to go haywire.
1: So he went in the first quarter. he felt pretty good about um, you know where he was he had a uh, he had a pension from an employer, and then he 'd done a pretty good job with his with his 401k and, and he he had worked with um, somebody at the, at a wirehouse for a really long time and he asked me to come with him and so I went with him and he 's like, "You know you feel free to ask anything you want you know you, you can be as tough on him as you want he 's a friend of mine i 'm like, okay, dad and so we sat down in the big conference room and I looked at Jim in the eye and I said, hey, Jim, will you tell me about your philosophy on asset allocation for my dad's portfolio as he transitions? And literally, he went white. He started sweating. Sweat literally started to pour down his face. He said, I'll be right back. He left. He came back about, and my dad's like, "Saddle down. You can't do that. <laughs> he, um, he left and he came back and he, he put down like a hundred page deck. And he's like, this is it. You can read it. This is our philosophy. And I said, no, no, Jim, what's your philosophy? And so we left and my dad's like, why are you so hard on him? I'm like, listen, pop, you saved your whole life. You're moving into retirement. You and mom have some things you want to do. We got to make sure that you got enough money. And, you know, he switched advisors. And then, you know, as the market began to, to crater, he literally called me Josh for almost two years, every single day at the close. And he asked me one question, what should I do? And my advice to him always was pop, if you need the money right now, we've got to do something. Do you need the money right now? No, like then the Dad, you just you got to wait, and you got to let it play out, and he was in a you know a good, balanced portfolio, but the panic that he had was not how much more he was going to make he was he'd accepted where he was, his panic Josh, was not having enough to live on and and you know that was something that that just really meant a lot to me, and so you know again, I, I mentioned that I always cared about the end investor, and it was it was really important to me. You know, the other thing that's interesting is between my time at FI and Morningstar, I've literally been in thousands of advisor offices and, and in, in probably almost every um, home office of the asset managers and most of the, the broker dealers. And so, you know, when you walk in the door, you just begin to get a feel for who they are as you talk to them and really learn their philosophy, not what's printed on their website, you learn about them. So- Do you, you, know, have, to much- read,
0: do you have to read the hundred page uh, <laughs> deck?
1: No. I I didn't even take it. I I left it there. But, you know, as I um, at at Morningstar, I met um, somebody who's become a really close personal friend of mine, um, Scott Colangelo, who um, has always been a a retirement and a plan focused advisor. And so I got to know him at Morningstar when I was at FI. He's big into the fiduciary movement. We, We became even tighter. And so about four years ago, he started talking to me about an idea that he had to help bring some retirement income and some guarantees to participants who were in plans. And so it's pretty, pretty long before it's time. I, I listened to him, I thought it was interesting. I thought there was no way he was gonna pull it off because he was trying to bring together some traditional competitors to really do the right thing. And as we all know, that doesn't always equate to making a lot of money. So, you know, I thought, yeah, all right, Scott, God bless you and, and we'll see how it goes. About two years ago, it started to to get a little bit more traction and he was having some meetings. Um, Over the summer, when I decided I was looking for um, a new challenge, something else to do, Scott started really talking to me about um, a solution that he was going to bring to market. And so, you know, late in the fall, I agreed to, you know, to one, really join Prime Cap as a board advisor to help them think through strategy. And then as the solution got closer and closer, um, I decided that it was really a, a perfect fit for me because at the end of the day, it was built from the bottom up, having the end investor in mind. And so it was, it was a really nice fit for me.
0: That's great. That's great. And so, and Scott is the, is he the founder of Prime Capital?
1: Yeah, he's the, he's the, uh, not necessarily the founder, but he's the, um, he's the chairman of the board for the firm. And uh, Prime Capital is actually a, a consultant on the product because it's it really has six different partners: American Century, Lincoln, Nationwide, SSNC slash D S T, Wilshire, and Wilmington Trust. So it's really and a consortium.
0: Got it. So like you said, some you know bringing together some I don't want to call it strange bedfellows, but but you know <laughs> there that they're, uh, they're, there's a win in being able to bring together kind of competitors and in kind of maybe a spirit of you know, whether it's collaboration or coopetition, uh, but, but so talk a little bit about again, because this is going to be new. So mm-hmm. what's the vision for income America? What, what are you trying, what are you trying to do? You, you mentioned to provide some in-plan guarantees mm-hmm. um, in, in retirement plans for participants. So what, mm-hmm. what, what are you guys trying to build and accomplish?
1: Yeah. I mean, really at the end of the day, it's to provide a, a simple solution for guaranteed retirement income. I mean, that, that's, the, that's the simplest way. Um, there's, there's a lot of different ways that people can do it out of plan through annuities, and there's some ways that they can do it in plan, but those are all pretty complex, Josh. You know, some of the retail stuff is really expensive. And so at the end of the day, the, the mission of the group was to create a, a simple product that the participant um, and investor could understand that the advisor could understand, and just as importantly, that the plan sponsor could understand. Because, as you know from years of working with them, you know, depending on the size of the firm and who's on the investment committee, um, typically there's there's just not a lot of sophistication there. Those those sponsors have other jobs, and so, you know, we wanted to create something that was really simple for all of them to understand.
0: And so, it's a combination. The way way you had kind of explained it when we when we were just chatting about it ahead of time is it's really a combination of a, of a target date strategy, QDIA strategy, plus guarantees, but, but there's a portability element. So maybe you could just describe what the, what the solution, what it is and and how it works.
1: Yeah, I'd be happy to. So um, the way that it's structured is um, it uses American Century's uh, glide path. So it is a, it is a CIT and it is a target date at the beginning. So, um, you know, as the participant you know, and and it is um, a 338 solution, so it's QDIA-friendly. So as the participant ages, um, you know, the glide path is going to change with the allocation. Depending on the plan demographics, at a certain point, you know, typically age 50, um, there's the ability to move into a a guaranteed income um, structure. And so the way that it works is it leverages American Century's uh, glide path, for the manager due diligence and selection that's performed by Wilshire, there's actually 17 different strategies from, I think, eight different companies. So it's, it's really best in breed. It's open architecture. There is no proprietary nature to it. Um, and then the way that Lincoln and Nationwide fit into it is they are both stable value providers. But in addition to that, um, they're, the, um, they're the insurance wrappers. So it's a GLWB that's wrapped on top of the participation's market value. So that's the greater of all their contributions plus market appreciation, um, but it can be never less than than their um, actual contributions. And then at age 55, there's a step up. So the the benefit's gonna lock into whatever the market value is, and it's really simple. The payout's 5% for life. So if the market tanks, they're still gonna receive 5%. If there's massive market appreciation, and the end participant wants to pull the money out and do something else, they can do so. There's no surrender fees. Um, you know, there's no reason not to do that. So, you know, it's it's really a unique opportunity. The other thing, and you mentioned it, is about the portability. Because we all know that Americans aren't, aren't at one job for 50 years and getting the gold watch. They, they move and do other things. So as a participant moves and takes on a new job, as long as Income America... Is available in that plan, and with that record keeper, they can fully move whatever amount of savings that they've accumulated. So, you know, the non-proprietary nature is probably one of the things that that most attracted me to this. So, SSNc slash DST is the technology provider that allows the um, the CIT to be portable, and then Wilmington Trust is ultimately the custodian, and they take on the the three thirty eight responsibility. So. You know, again at the participant level you can have security knowing that you're going to get five percent a life um, if you're an advisor you've got a fully uh, ERISA compatible solution and really the same thing as a plan sponsor you know that your employees are getting the best of a target date solution and you've provided them with some lifetime income you know it's interesting that there, there's been lots of talk Josh about you know participants desire for lifetime income and when we have events like we did in March of this year. Um, you know, like for me personally at home, it seems like every day I get invited to go out to a free steak dinner Great. and hear about a Great. solution to bring guarantee, right? We both know what that's all about. So yeah. yeah. Um yeah, so so this is much different because it, it's it's advisor, you know, it's advisor sold to the plan sponsor and yet it brings the benefit to the um end participant.
0: And so just so to kind of understand the pieces, so you've got mm-hmm. Wilmington is the 338 and then it's not American Century product. It's just you're essentially licensing their glide path research That's to correct. build the glide path at the Tark date, and then you've got Wilshire, who is actually. Are they selecting the managers, or are they just doing the due diligence on the managers that fill out the glide path? What's the relationship between Wilshire and Wilmington? How are they? Yep, Wilshire's is they-
1: doing Wilshire's doing the uh, the manager due diligence and screening on um, on the insurance providers, the stable value providers and the underlying managers. And then Wilmington is a 338 that sits on top of that. So, I mean, you know, it's different because it's, it's multi-manager, it's multi-insured and it's multi-fiduciary. So those are, you know, those are all in addition to being non-proprietary and portable and simple and institutionally priced. So, so those are all things that are really different about it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's interesting the portability piece and the, you know, being able to, uh, let, let's say that you had a participant and they were in it and they switched jobs and they said, you know what, I, I don't want to roll it over. Are they locked in from that perspective or can they, can they take their, can they, can they take their money or are they locked in if they just said, you know what, I'm going to, I just hired a financial advisor and I'm just going to roll it out. Did they lose all those guarantees?
1: That's a, that's a, that's a great question. It, you know, well, I guess there's one of two things. One, could they leave it in plan yes i believe that they could if they wanted to roll it out at launch there's not a there's not a live ra functionality but that is um that is functionality that we're calling day two that we're starting to work on so that if they wanted to roll it to an ira and keep the guarantee they can do so you know the only the only nuance there might be you know can the investments be exactly the same and will the fees be the same because one of the reasons why, you know, the fee's so low is is it's done at the group level. So those are two things that I don't know. But, you know, I would think that technically they should be allowed to leave
0: it in plan. I, I guess if they leave it in plan, I mean, I, 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 uh, I guess the real question, you know, a lot of times with, and it's funny, you mentioned, you know, the annuities. Uh, and, and you know, annuity, annuity, especially like a fee only, you know fiduciary advisor is generally a a dirty (laughs) word though. I will say, I I think things like immediate annuities definitely have a, a place, but there's so many, whether it's, you know, equity index annuities, which are just a, you know, um, I'm just gonna say they're, they're, they're a racket. It was was funny when I started working in the wirehouse. a good buddy of mine, he said, you always know the worse a product is, the higher commission it pays because the harder it is to sell, <laughs> right? So, um, and then lockup periods, that's one of the tough things with yeah. annuities, right? And you get kind yep. of locked in and that's, that's some right. fear. And it sounds like what you guys have designed with this is, you know, you may not be able to keep the guarantee, let's say if you leave, but you're not gonna get penalized. That's right. You're not gonna get locked in. And I think that- sure, You're gonna
1: up. have your market value. That's right. Yeah,
0: yeah. And and so if, let's say if somebody's in the target date and they, they get to age 50, Mm -hmm. um, or age 55, Mm -hmm. they have to elect the, do they have to elect their guarantee? Let's just say, they say, you know what, I'm going to work for another 20 years and I'm good. And I don't want to, I don't want to elect it yet. Can they still just stay in the target date? They could,
1: could. you know, and and I guess the only nuance to that would be if the, if the plan sponsor sets up in the plan docs that, um, as a QDIA at age 50, you're going into it, then they're, then they're not going to have the opportunity to okay. do it. But, but otherwise, yes, you're right. Got it. Okay. Um, because again, it, it, it it can act as a QDIA or it can sit along with an existing QDIA um, and just be used for the population yeah. that's, you know, 50 or over. So, it or it could be on there as just, you know, an option. It really depends on the plan design.
0: Yeah. You know, it was interesting. I, I several episodes ago uh, I had a chance to interview uh, Michael Dozier from Hero Price, and we were just mm-hmm. talking about, you know, you you had, you know, 20 years ago, right? You especially the the, you know, I started my career in the in the late 90s, and you had the kind of the huge proliferation of 401k menus, right? There were, you know, you're, you know, in yeah. the 80s Did in the 80s and early that? 90s, you yeah. had small small menus, and then yeah. the late 90s, there's 300 had this, options, had this yeah, this expansion, yeah, and then you saw it coming back, and I think, you know, I know I'm a big advocate. Aff- for when you look at the at the, just the, the data and the research is that, you know, there is very much a powerful paralysis by analysis that that yes. you, you need it. Too few options isn't good, but too many options actually has a negative impact on investor behavior. Yep. Um, but what we talked about, and I think this is the innovation moving forward, and you kind of alluded to it, is that it doesn't need to be kind of like a binary either or. You know, the older I get, the more I see that so much in life. It's not an either or, it's a both mm-hmm. and. And right. It's it's mm-hmm. it creates flexibility in a framework and this idea of tiered menus within 401k plans. And so, you mm-hmm. know, being able to potentially engineer that, hey, we have this solution that maybe it sits alongside, and maybe we only open it up for you know people at age 50, potentially. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe there's a set of solutions and investments that are only available once somebody kind of trips the wire of right. getting to a certain point and you know how do you that i think that's the next evolution from a, uh, a menu design perspective is you know it's not just a target date fund and some asset class funds that maybe there's these different tiers that are meant to target and isolate different populations and i think m- more and more especially large plan sponsors and michael and i had talked about this is that there seems to be a preference years ago and when i you know probably five years ago most companies once people got to retirement it was like mm-hmm. hey let's give you your assets and let's get out later. Let's get, you, let's yep. later. let's get you out. And yep. there seems to be a growing appetite for by plan sponsors, to, especially in the large market to have participants stay in plan mm-hmm. post separation. And mm-hmm. to do that, how do you begin to bring solutions mm-hmm. that, that normally you could only get outside of a plan? How do you bring that in plan? And that sounds like what income America in many ways, what you're trying to accomplish is, you know, bring some of those solutions that are maybe better designed, better, better cost efficient, but bring them into a plan as opposed to forcing a participant, you know, yeah. to go work with Jim yeah. like your dad did and, and, and throwing them to the wolves, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, two, two quick thoughts there. Right. One is you're right. You know, the, the sponsors do seem to be more uh, maternalistic toward their employees. Right. And, and again, if you're going to roll out, because <laughs> the flyer that I got yesterday was, you know, Bring, your, bring all your IRAs in or your IRAs, right? right so right. You know, rather than having to, to buy a retail annuity, um, you can do it in the plan and the buying power is so much better. But for me personally, I had to fill out a survey the other day, I, I moved to a different age block, right? I just, I turned 55 in December. And so, you know, the way that I thought about my financial future at 45 was much different than I do at 55. And so Josh, to your point about creating these different buckets, whether they're age-based or income-based or whatever it might be, yeah, I think that that's part of the future.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, so as we wrap up, uh, and, and I've really enjoyed this discussion, you know, the, the, one of the goals of this podcast is to make ERISA Fiduciary Smarter. And so one of the questions that I, I ask each guest at the end of the show is, if you had one piece of advice for, uh, a fiduciary of fiduciaries, whether that's an advisor, whether that's a retirement plan committee member, what would it be?
1: I found a great quote in a, in a book that I really like. It reads like this, as a fiduciary, you have the power to change the course of people's lives and future generations through the choices you make. Does that sound familiar, Josh? <laughs> you know, I, I, I think that, you know,
0: J.D. Carlson from Retireholics has been giving me grief when he was on my show and then I was on his show. And then on LinkedIn, he constantly gives me grief about the fact that I reference that I might have written a book far too much. And so by design, I have not tried to mention that on this show. But I think that was a quote at the end of a book that might have been familiar.
1: Yeah. And so, you know, I always think, you know, fiduciary, I equate that to doing the right thing. And, um, I just believe in life that if you do the right thing, no matter what period you, you kind of measure yourself over, you're going to, you're going to end up, um, on the high side of whatever you're looking to do. So, so that's kind of the way that, um, that I look at it. And it's funny, you mentioned my, my buddy JD, I just sent him a shirt the other day I was on vacation and, uh, I was down in Florida and sent him a Ron John surf shops, but I had to check with him and to make sure that that was still cool. And he said, yeah,
0: that was still cool. So that was good. Yeah. He, did he say yes. Did he say yes. That was, uh, he did. That's that's funny. That's they, they've, uh, I've had a good, a good time recently. We we've had some good banter back and forth, uh, he and I, so, um, the fact that you referenced my book, I think, Means that I did I did not I did not bring that up proactively. So <laughs> the last couple of minutes, what um, I, I want to ask you a couple of things. One is just where can people go to to stay connected with you to learn more about what you're doing, what you're up to, if they want to reach out to you, if they want to learn about Income America. We'll put it in the show notes. But but where can people go to stay connected with you?
1: You know, I'm uh, I'm pretty active on social media. So at M M W A L N O. I always have a stream of thoughts up there. I'm not quite as active on LinkedIn, but I'm there. The Income America website's pretty simple. It's incomeamerica.com. And my email address is even more simple. It's matt at incomeamerica.com. So, um, you know, I'm always happy to chat and always um, looking for new ideas. So, um, you know, people should feel free to reach out to me any way that they feel comfortable.
0: That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show and, and loved your insights. And, you know, I really appreciate all the things you've done throughout your career and, and Well, thanks, Josh. Ad- admire that and, and, you know, really helping to promote this idea of what it means to be a fiduciary. Like I said, we shouldn't even have to talk about this, but the fact is we do. But as yeah. you mentioned, if if it's really about doing what's best for the people that we serve if you take that approach over time, you know, everybody's going to win. So thank you for all the things you've done over the years to try to promote that, that mindset. And as you continue to do it uh, in this new, uh, this new gig that you're you've embarked upon. So thank you. Sounds
1: good, Josh. I enjoyed the conversation. Have a great day.
0: You too. Thanks for listening to today's episode with Matt Wolnowitz from Income America. If you'd like more information and to learn more, go to fiduciaryu.com. I've got some great resources there for you, including each episode, along with show notes, articles, free tools, and online courses. And make sure to sign up on the site so we can stay connected. I'd love to help you stay in the know about what's happening in the world of corporate retirement plans. And if you've got questions you'd like me to answer, topics you'd like me to discuss, guests you think would be a good fit for the show, or any other feedback, I'd love to hear from you. Also, head over to Amazon and check out my two books, The Fiduciary Formula and Fixing the 401k. And if you want an easy way to support the show, I'd really appreciate you leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to help other people find the show, and I read each one. Until next time, thanks again for listening to The Fiduciary You Podcast. And now for some disclosures. Greenspring Advisors is a registered investment advisor. The opinions I express on this show are my own and do not reflect the opinions of my guests or the companies they work for. All statements and opinions expressed are based upon information considered reliable, although it should not be relied upon as such. Any statements or opinions are subject to change without notice. The information and content presented on the show is for educational purposes only and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments or investment strategies. Investments involve risk and unless otherwise stated are not guaranteed. Information expressed does not take into account your specific situation or objectives and is not intended as recommendations appropriate for any individual. Listeners are encouraged to seek advice from a qualified tax, legal, or investment advisor to determine whether any information presented may be suitable for their specific situation, and past performance is not indicative of future
1: performance.